Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, November the 2nd, 2022. We're about two weeks away from the Miami Book Fair. Big event. Regular viewers and listeners to the show know that we've been featuring a number of the superstar authors who are going to be going to Miami in a couple of weeks. It runs between the 30th, 13th and the 20th, ending with an orgy of superstar writers, as I said. Uh, we've done a number of shows, one with Emily Tamkin. She has a new book out called Bad Jews. Um, which is kind of interesting because she definitely was a good Jew. But we also had a real bad Jew on the show, uh, a man called Jerry Stahl, who has a book out called 999, One Man's Tale of Depression, Psychic Torment and a Bus Tour of the Holocaust. Jerry is a self-styled bad Jew who actually, sadly enough, I guess in his 999 book, he ends up as a good Jew. Another bad guy is going to Miami. My guest today, Isaac Fitzgerald, who is actually appearing with Jerry Stahl on uh, a panel, the Bad Boys panel, I guess, on the uh, 20th of November, a Sunday, to bring the event to an appropriate climax and end. And Isaac is joining us from Brooklyn, New York today. Uh, Isaac, what are you doing in Brooklyn when you've just written a book called Dirtbag Massachusetts? It's a great question and one I get a lot. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. Um, so Dirtbag Massachusetts, it's where I grew up, but as you know from reading the book, I bounce around a lot of different places and I've been in Brooklyn now for almost 10 years. Uh, so it's almost been a decade here in New York. That said, uh, this year, since the book came out, July 19th, I actually have been bouncing around the country quite a bit. Uh, so right now I'm coming in after spending some time in St. Louis and spending some time in Portland, Oregon. But I'm happy to be home and I'm happy to be here with you. I'm thrilled. I'm honored to have you. Um, your book, many people will be familiar with it. It's already a bestseller. Um, describes you as um, a bomb that exploded his parents' life, and this idea of a bomb is a metaphor used. Are you an unexploded bomb, Isaac, or one that's already gone off? Are we dealing with the consequences of the Isaac Fitzgerald bomb, or is it still ticking? Tick, tick, ticking away. I hope it's not tick, tick, ticking away. But, you know, life is long, and we're all humans with all sorts of different things inside of us. Uh, but what I'm tackling in the book is very much basically this view that I had of myself. So my parents were married when they had me just to different people. And I really took that on from a very young age. And I saw myself, like you just said, as that bomb that exploded their lives and not just affected their lives, but I have half siblings and other people in the family. And so that was the story that I told myself from a very, very young age. And I would say that particular bomb definitely exploded in my 20s. Um, as much as I tried to tell myself, oh, that happened in the past, I'm moving away from it. I looked at, at my 20s now that I'm in my 30s, looking back on them, I can see all the different ways, this anger and all these pent up feelings that I was trying to either repress or run away from were coming out. And I, at the time, if you'd asked me, I would have said, no, this has nothing to do with my childhood, nothing to do with my background. 
But now that I've had some space and some time to really look at those actions, I can see them for what they are. So I think that bomb at least has blown up. Who knows? There are many, I feel like there's probably many bombs inside all of us. I know you already know Jerry Stahl and you're a big admirer of his work and his persona um, as this, one of the great bad boys of American literature. Do you think of yourself as a bad boy? No, I don't think of myself. I, I'm far too sweet. Uh, I have a, 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 an essay in the book that talks about this time that I worked at Zeitgeist, which is this fantastic bar in San Francisco. And right. it's had a huge history. No, just down the road from me, actually. Yeah, and, and it's fantastic. I love it so much. And my time that was there was so, so wonderful. Uh, but one of the things that's fun, when I started working there, uh, there was a guy, Todd, who I love and I describe in the book. And he used to yell at me because I spot, smiled too much. So it was very much kind of this bar with a tough, edgy attitude. And I was kind of always like, hey, how are you? Welcome. And he's like, stop doing that. And I was like, wow, come on. Why not? Like, it's all right. It's just my personality. And he was just like, no, it's fucking with my tips. It's screwing with my tips. And at the time, I remember thinking, what are you talking about? Like, how could you get more tips by being meaner? But uh, comes to one, there's actually been studies on this. But especially in spaces like that, where people go there kind of expecting a gruffness, people actually do end up tipping more in those situations. So Todd was absolutely right. As for myself, yeah, I don't think of myself as a bad boy. I think of myself very much as a work in progress. And I would say the same about Jerry, for the record. Like, you want to talk about bad boy, sure. But he's also, like you said, by the end of that book and, and many of his Yeah, books, he, he got the bus to Auschwitz and he, he, got, he got on the bus a bad boy, got off a good boy. Yeah, um, he's got a Maybe that's boy. what you need to do, um... Uh, Isaac, have you ever fancied a bus tour of Auschwitz? I have not been myself, but I definitely hope to. I've traveled all around the U.S., but I have not done as much Europe as I should. Um, you mentioned bars, the New York Times review, which was very, very positive review, um, describes you nestling comfortably on a bar stool next to Kerouac and Bukowski, Richard Price and Pete Hamill. And they don't mention Jerry Starr, but they should have. <laughs> Did you, do you feel particularly, what is it about bars, Isaac, that make you, they're dark and noisy and full of piss. I mean, what, what is it about bars that you like? I mean, they feel like in, in a very interesting way, it feels like church to me. It feels like community to me. I want to say on that line in the New York Times, I mean, I was so, so touched. Those are authors that I deeply admire, some of which I was raised with, some of which I came to later in life. And so to even be mentioned in the same breath or the same sentence, just like. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a it's quite a compliment. Kerouac and Bukowski, right? Yeah. And I mean, those it's funny. Those are two of my father's favorites. Uh which I, of course, then absolutely gobbled up and absolutely love and adore. And one of after my well, you dad, never rebelled against your dad. You never, whatever he liked, you always hated. You weren't that type of child. No, no. I mean, I mean, listen. He and I, he and I came to blows. We had our moments. It was really, really rough. But there were certain things. Books for us was always a way to communicate. Books and writing were always uh, something that we had in common. And when he read this book, actually, one of his responses was. I probably shouldn't have given you so much Bukowski to read at such a young age, uh, which, I, you know, I was like, you know what? Fair enough. But uh, to, to answer the question about bars, I just find them to be, you know, it's, it's something that a, a friend said to me uh, as I was describing the book. There are places like Zeitgeist where I think I initially was drawn to it because I was looking for danger. I think because of my childhood, because of my background, I was drawn to these places that at least outwardly seemed dangerous. But then what I found in those spaces 
was community and wonderful people, characters from all, all different backgrounds. And this is true. So my childhood housed um, living situation run by the Catholic worker, surrounded by people with incredible stories. If you look at it on paper, that should have been like the least saddest, like that should have been the, the hardest time of my childhood. It was actually the easiest. That was the time I was the most at home in a real way, was in this space that, you know, maybe you didn't think was great for a kid. That's the same with bars and with so many other places. Where I did find danger was in my actual home, was in the church. There were these spaces that were sold themselves to safe. That is where I actually found the most danger. And these bars that often are like trying to have that rough attitude, that is where I found a connection to community. Have you, I'm not sure if you've seen this new movie, um, The- Oh, I'm dying to see it, sorry. Yeah, I, I really think, you know, you could have made it yourself or you could be in it. Um, it's this wonderful film I saw at the weekend. I think it's going to win a lot of the Oscars, uh, an Irish film about the breakup of a, of a friendship between two men. And interestingly enough, it takes place in two places, in a bar where they live out there. I mean, they weren't homosexuals, but they live out their romance. Yeah. And then in the confessional, what's the connection particularly in catholic culture um isaac between the bar and the confessional between okay, first off, I'm the just public so house and the church i'm so glad to hear that you like that movie because i've been dying i've been running yeah you'll love it i mean everyone will love it but you'll particularly love it i can't i can't wait to see it no but that's a, what you just said it's a great question right and so that is when i named it a confessional it's because i'm telling these stories about myself that i haven't told to many people but then of course i'm trying to draw that feeling of being in the confessional, which raised Catholic, I spent a lot of time in. And for me, the, you know, like, like you kind of just said yourself, there is that, there's the darkness, there's the dimness, you know, there is um, this sense that you're sharing something. Oftentimes in a bar, you might go there either with a friend or you might meet a stranger there. You'll have that kind of conversation. So I think there's a similarity there. And just in general, like if, if you want to think of a church you know, a church that's doing its job, a church that's that's a part of the community and is a place of, you know, protection or where someone can go in order to um, spend some time with themselves even, you know. I think that really does work with a bar as well. A bar is a place where you can spend time by yourself or, you know, a church, you might go there during the service, you're surrounded by people, you're all singing together. Um, that kind of stuff can happen in a bar as well. So I think those two places do have actually a lot in common, even though other people, you know, some people might see them as two separate ends of the spectrum. Did you see the, uh, the Bruce Springsteen thing on Broadway? I didn't. I think you'd enjoy that one. He has bars in it, but there, he has this one story where he goes into a bar to look for his father because his father spent his whole childhood in a bar and he was lost to the world and of course Springsteen defines himself and his work around his complicated relationship with his father um but the reason I bring it up is that at the end of on Broadway Springsteen who isn't a believer acknowledges that you can never really get rid of a Catholic education did you feel that yourself yeah a hundred percent and I mean if I'm being a hundred like I think I'm somebody who at a very young age walked away from the church and was not a believer and was like, oh, like so many, like so many other creatives from Springsteen onwards. Right. Right. And, and I think and I think I was like, and I've got that figured out as I get older. It's this interesting thing. Again, I separated myself from my parents so much 
and that's part of the story of this book too is kind of how a family explodes apart and then comes back together in a weird new shape but i find myself drawn to the things that interested in my parents as, as as hard as i try not to right one of them is walking my parents are both walkers and they're of course huge readers and they lovers of literature and that has been a true for all my life but the thing that i think i'm most surprised by as i get older is Again, don't get me wrong, I don't think I'm joining any kind of organized religion anytime soon, but I do find myself intrigued by spirituality, reading more about spirituality, uh, what I kind of almost half-jokingly, half-not now call talking to the sky. And so I think there is, you know, that's the beauty of faith, that's the beauty, it's, it's the unknowableness, right? Like to, to pretend like you have it all figured out in such a massive universe uh, is is something that I think in my 20s, I was happy to trying to do. And now in my 30s, I can accept that I probably don't know a damn thing. Isaac, your book jumped to number two when it came out on the New York Times bestseller. It's doing brilliantly. The review um, headlines in the New York Times, what's wrong and sometimes right with American men? It universalizes your story and addresses this whole question of what it is to be an American male in the early part of the 21st century. Are you comfortable with that? Do you see yourself in some ways as symbolic of, of, of the male, of the odd American male of our age? Or is that just coincidental? Are they, are they making the wrong links, do you think? No, I mean, I mean again, that, so that review is by Michael Ian Black, who is this incredible comedian. And he himself has written some incredible books, including he wrote a kind of a letter to his son. So for the New York Times to even assign it to him was such such an honor. And like, and then for him, I mean, he's a comedian. He could have easily- Can you imagine if he'd have thought it was shit? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He could have just taken the piss and that's right. And and of course, when they assign it, they have no idea how he's going to react to it. So he could have, he could have just torn me a new one. So to have that headline and to have that review was incredible. But I think what he's trying to get at there is I think that is where he's being a little tongue in cheek. Like in no way do I represent, like I, this is the beauty of being a human. Like we're all so complex. We're all, of course we have so many similarities, but we're also all so, so different. I don't think you can really even capture the experience of an entire generation in one person. I, you know, every once in a while, everyone's like, oh, the novel of a generation. But again, that always shifts. And usually it's the novel that nobody's reading when somebody's alive that like, you know, Moby Dick being the classic example is the one that actually seems to speak for a time period long after the author is dead. Uh, so nothing like that. But I do think what he was touching on is right now, it feels like there's a crisis going on. And this is something that I'm very interested in as well, which is like, I think anger comes from a place when people feel stuck. And that's something I was trying to get at with my book is how I myself as an angry young man where was that anger, anger coming from? Where was that frustration coming from? Where was this need to kind of act out coming from? And it was because I felt stuck. It's because I felt, to put it a different way, unable to grow. And that I think is something that we're faced with right now as a culture is we want to be able to have conversations and show especially young men that there is growth, that there's opportunity, that it's okay to change how you feel about something. It's okay even to just like, have, like when I was growing up, it was very much like, don't, don't show those emotions, keep a stiff upper lip. And it's okay to actually change who you are a little bit to figure yourself out and to take time to figure that out. And so that's kind of the conversation I'm hoping to start. And I feel like Michael Ian Black saw that a little bit in the book and I appreciate that. 
Have you seen the new book by Richard Reed of Boys and Men? Um, why the modern I haven't had a chance to read it. Have, have you seen it? I've seen it. I haven't had a chance to read it. Yeah, he was on the show too. And the reason, again, I asked, coming back to this Irish film, is there was an interesting piece in The Guardian that talks about male friendship and the mm. crisis of friendship and connects the Reeves book with this new movie. How much of the crisis of modern masculinity, what it is to be a, a male, a, a man, a boy in, in the early 21st century, is bound up, do you think, in the struggle for friendship and solidarity and community? And, and, and maybe rather than speaking abstractly, how much was that bound up in your explosion and then the post-bomb narrative yeah well i mean again it's interesting why am i drawn to a bar right well that's a place where it's okay you know it's okay to sit around and spend time talking like that's that space you know why do we call them pubs well it's because they're public houses right that's the initial idea we can all sit around talking and i just love just for the record like male friendship is one of probably not just my favorite subject matters, but like, you know, uh, platonic love, I think is such an important and often overlooked emotion. Um, and I did, I, I, there's a few pieces out right now. I saw somebody was saying that it's like an all time low for men responding to a survey saying that they even had close friends. So yeah, I do. I think you need to make a space for community and a space for those types of relationships and acknowledging that they're very important relationships. There's this other book, excuse me, it's not out yet, but it's coming out, I want to say February of next year. It's called We Should Not Be Friends. And it's by Will Schaub. And it's this wonderful book um, that I've read that is, is the story of these two guys who definitely are just like totally, totally different. And it's the story of their lifetime friendship. And but at the, those early years, how they basically looked at each other and said, all right, yeah, no, like we're never going to get along. And I think so often people shut that down and, and aren't willing to be open with people uh, who come into their lives, especially when, oh, you've got your job, you've got your work friends, maybe you have a family, um, you have all these things taking up time. And so you're not making a space for those relationships. But I think it's so, so important that you have friends that you feel like you can confide in, that you can be yourself around, that you can talk through your problems with. I mean, that's, that's something that I deeply struggled with for a very long time. I sometimes would be so secretive that I wouldn't even share problems with the friends in my life. And of course, friends can't help you if you don't even know how to ask for help. So I think you're absolutely right. I think they're very, very connected. It's interesting you big up, you bring up the, the public space aspect of the pub. You don't strike me as a, an explicitly political writer, but there, there, there is a, a politics in your, in your worldview, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, I have a background, like I actually worked in politics at one point, but like, I don't know, I think when I'm trying, when I, and again, so much of writing is just trying and failing, but when I'm trying and sometimes I hope to hit it, I really do try, I'm, I'm aiming for something human. Like, I think I have a very hard time trying to split things down political lines because, again, it gets back to this idea, this, this, this idea of, like, you have to be okay with shifting. You have to be okay 
with changing your mind about something, about growing. And there are so many things, especially in this book, like that's another part of it is I'm re-examining the person that I used to be and, and seeing how far I've come to where I am now. But if you want to acknowledge that, if you get to say something like that, you have to acknowledge that then there's maybe some other future you that's going to be completely different than the person you are now. So that's the thing that I think I try to attack is like, there's truth. There's, of course, there's truth. But I try to stay away from any type of righteousness or this feeling that, oh, this is the way it should be. Because I so often think that the way it should be, if you think that at one point in your life, very well may change your mind about that later. Another of your... Your your namesakes, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. I'm not sure if you've been compared with him much, but I, I just reread This Side of Paradise, his first novel about the world in 1920. In 2020, in some ways, the world isn't that different in our sense of uncertainty and change. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've, you've read or This Side mm -hmm. of Paradise or you're familiar with much of Fitzgerald's work, but do you think that the Fitzgerald 2.0 world is, is in some ways quite similar to the 1.0? Oh, 100%. And again, to, you want to talk about somebody I don't want to be in the same breath with. Uh, I mean, just F. Scott Fitzgerald is incredible. Um, and, but I agree with you 100%. So often, I feel that the problems that we, that we face are the same over and over again. And I, I don't know why I'm talking about age, so, but that is another thing that I find myself, I'm approaching 40 right now. I find myself recognizing the older I get. It's like the more aware you are, the more you can see how these problems just keep popping up. And like, not to sound too flat, but like all of a sudden time starts to feel a little bit like a flat circle. So yeah, that and, the, and that's the beauty of timeless literature, right? That's the beauty of a book that can speak very much to the moment that it's in the 1920s, but you can still pick up today and glean lessons from, because as much as, you know, maybe technology has, has, has shifted and there are these great strides and, you know, uh, medicine and these things that, that definitely do change our lives and impact them. It doesn't change the fact that so many problems are very human problems. And so, yeah, maybe there's faster cars or there's this, but a lot of it is still in the creatures that we are. How strongly do you feel uh, uh, Americanize it? Um, we did a show with Stacey Schiff, another Miami uh, book fair person. She has a new book out on Samuel Adams, one of the, I guess he was the bad boy founding father. <laughs> do, do, do you think of yourself in the American, I mean, you're clearly very well read in American literature. Um, Fitzgerald and so on. But um, do you think of yourself as American? Is there something peculiarly American about you in this well, tradition? I mean, I mean, just because, like, listen, I love this country. I love how big it is. I love traveling it. I love walking it, exploring it. Um, and I love how complicated it is. So to answer your question, like, yes, 100%. Um, I do. I do think of my you know it's i'm still wrapping my head around thinking of myself as a american like that's that's i'm trying not to put too many labels but yeah that's what i am i'm an american writer and i kind of like find myself drawn to to this place that is filled with all these big ideas with all these hopes and dreams from its beginning 
while also having all of this darkness and all of these um, almost tumors and, and sicknesses within itself, right? And so it's always been this constant push and pull um, that makes this country so complicated, but that's what makes it such an incredible place to be in. I mean, you brought up Bruce Springsteen, not to veer off of literature back into music, but I mean, here's somebody who whose whole art form is both making music that celebrates so many different parts of this country, while at the same time, almost like having a wink, like almost having like a little bit of a, you know, you, uh, that's it's one of the things that I love about Bruce Springsteen. So often people who do not agree with his politics will use his music for themselves, not recognizing kind of the earnestness in it. Hang on, give me one second. I'm sorry, this beeping is happening. That's probably that Bruce Springsteen. That was on your end. I'm sorry, it was on mine. My apologies. Was that um, Bruce Springsteen? Yeah, so I just, I just like, when you, when you think about American literature, that's what I love about this country, and that's what I love about the books that come out of it. And I think as it gets larger and more diverse, you have so many different stories. To right, tell. And, and I think for me as an outsider, one of the things that attracts America to many people, I think, who come in from the outside is its generosity of spirit which in many ways has been lost, maybe represented in political terms by someone like Teddy Roosevelt, who you perhaps look a little bit alike. It, it, has that generosity been lost, Isaac? Do you think that that's manifested in some ways in the spirit of your work? Well, hang on. I, can I ask you just one question? I always do this. I always try to ask at least one question. So what brought you to the States? Uh, grad school in the early 80s. So I've been here. And, 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 then you, and then you stayed, yeah? Yeah, okay, I go back from time to time and I've been backwards and forwards, but there's always, you know, the ideal is, is one of generosity, I think, of spirit, of innovation, of energy, which of course is sometimes hard to find these days. No, I, I, and, I, and I hear you on that, but that is, that is something that I, you know, I think from this talk is very clear and definitely it's in the book. Like at, at my core, even in dark, dark times, I have to be an optimist. And I do, I do think very often an optimist is painted as somebody who doesn't see reality. And what I believe in is you really have to take a cold, hard look at what is happening around you, but still to be able to hope for the best. And so when it comes to generosity, it's, it's, it's funny you should bring this up because it's actually a question near and dear to me. And I can't say too much about my, my next project, but it is going to involve a lot of going out into the world. Like I said, kind of walking. Uh, a book project or something? Yeah, a book project about going out into the world, walking and trying to meet as many people where they are and just trying to talk to people. Uh, and, and because that is, that is something that I feel like I so often see this disconnect from the ways things are portrayed in the media um, the ways that we are made to feel about one another um, through, you know, whether it be mainstream media, social media, all these different things that are constantly grabbing for our attention. Yet when I go out into the world and I talk with people and I meet with people or I'm at a bar or, you know, even a discussion like this, I find people are generous, that I can make these connections with people. Um, and and, and I, I just think that that is so such a core part of our society. Like you said, it's something that might draw somebody to this country is that generosity. And I think I still see it sometimes. Like people will be like, oh, 
oh, you know, if uh, somebody will come in as a tourist or, or their parents, maybe a friend's parents will come from another country and they'll be like, oh, I was getting scared watching the like, especially in New York, we're dealing with this right now. You know, you look at some of the way, oh, it's dying. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. And then, you know, you walk down the street and it's absolutely lovely. Uh, you have a wonderful time. And so, yeah, I have friends who's, whose parents are visiting from other countries and they're like, oh, we're a little nervous about coming, but we've actually had the best times. Everyone's been so nice. And so I, I do believe the generosity is still out there. What about the narrative of your work? You began uh, as a children's author, How to Be a Pirate. You've written, you've, you've co-authored a couple of books about uh, tattoos. And now you come out with a confessional and then the next book's going to be something about America. How... How would you like to think of your chronology as a writer? I think for me, it's about, it's about looking at the common themes and, and I, it's things that I did not set out to do, but as I keep working, starts to come out of the work itself. So with those two tattoo books, one, I love collaboration. Um, and that's true of the kids' book as well, right? I worked with Bridget Berger, an incredible illustrator for the children's book. I worked with Wendy McNaughton, an incredible illustrator for the tattoo books. So there's that. But what do you have with tattoos? Well, it's the sense of community. It's the sense of like, it's so like it came out of the bar that I worked at when we were, we opened 9am to 2am every day of the year. So there was of course downtime. We would just talk about, oh, what's that tattoo? Like, oh, what's the story behind that one? Sometimes they're funny. Sometimes they're heartbreaking. That's where I got the idea for the book. But it comes down to the sense of community, you know, people that are interested in tattoos as an art form. So community is something that I see a lot of in my own work when I look back at it. Um, how to be a pirate is, is not really, I mean, it's about pirates, it's about tattoos, but what it's really about is how sitting around and telling stories with people you care about can brighten your day. So again, that goes back to the community part of it and then the storytelling part of it. And I think that's the other thing that I absolutely find fascinating and I hope to get more of in my next project, which is just letting people talk about where they come from, letting people tell the stories of themselves, explaining how they got to where they are today, where they maybe are hoping to go, because that's what I find fascinating. It gets back to that unhoused living situation that I mentioned earlier. As a kid, you know, again, you look at paper, it would be like, oh, he grew up in an unhoused situation. That must have been so hard. No, what I did was I lived in this place. Eventually my family goes to a place called John Larry House, which is like a halfway home. I get to live in this space where people have these incredible stories that are nothing like my own. And I got to hear those stories. So to be surrounded by those stories, as much as my parents love of literature and great books, I got to be surrounded by these great books. I also got to be surrounded by these very, very human stories. And so that's, that's where I hope I'm going as a writer. Like if that's, if that's the question, where I hope I'm going as a writer is somebody that's still exploring community, that's still exploring personal stories and that's still basically taking the time to listen to somebody else. Because that's what I, I mean. I'm still getting used to this part of it. I have to be on the other end of it where I have to be doing most of the talking. Because what I love doing is asking people questions and finding out about them. Yeah, it's the curiosity. You do a lot of TV work, too. You're on the Today Show a lot. Um, I could imagine you getting a, a, a permanent gig on television, maybe with this curiosity project. Um, do you sometimes wish that, um, in terms of writing, that you need a more visual medium, uh, video, audio, or, or are you happy with the book? No, 
Oh, I love this. This is, I mean, you're wrong. It's, it's there, right? I mean, somebody's asked, oh, would Dirtbag Massachusetts work for a movie or work for television? And of course, I'm always open to like different art forms. And as you and I both know, you also got to pay the rent, right? So there's different, there's definitely an interest there. But if you're at like where I want to be, like the only thing I want out of life is to make a living as a writer. And I love books. And that's one of the beauties, again, I, I'll say it again, but getting a little older, like I remember when the internet kind of first showed up and everyone was like, well, books are over. And then they weren't. And then I remember when like the internet made it easier to stream video. And so in like 2008, there's this big recession and everyone's like, oh, is the publishing industry going to die? Are newspapers going to, no, because you know what? Reading is one of the easiest, one of the best technologies still to this day on the planet in which one person writes things down and then another person takes their own memory. You know, the person's writing it has what they're explaining, what they have in their mind, their memories, what they're trying to put down. And then somebody else picks it up and reads it. Now, it's not going to be exact, right? Because like I say a bar, I'm picturing a certain type of bar. You might be picturing a different type of bar from your past, right? But you're engaging in this beautiful technology where one person's words go into another person's brain and that person's then able to imagine this world that's being created. So it also takes two people, the writer and the reader. And so for me, as much as like, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love getting to recommend books on the Today Show. Uh, I think podcasting is incredible. Uh, and, and especially when it comes to like sitting down and just shooting the shit with somebody telling long stories, it's a perfect medium for that. And to get that kind of conversationalness, but for me, like that's all fun and I hope to be a part of it. But the main core thing for me is I just want to make books because I think books are forever. I think books like as again, every, every few years, everyone's like, Oh, well, it's going this way. Oh, it's going. No, the fact of the matter is, is that that is a great way to communicate with other human beings, and it, it remains so to this day. Yeah, yeah, thinking through this male thing, maybe the longing is for American authors, male authors from Fitzgerald and, and Hemingway. Also, Anthony Bourdain made his name as a writer. He became a TV star. Uh, but what we want back is our American writer, and I think we have it with Isaac Fitzgerald, the 21st century version of um, all the great American writers in lots of different ways. Um, perhaps a happier version of Anthony Bourdain. Uh, congratulations, uh, Isaac, on, on all this remarkable success. I hope you cause a lot of trouble with Jerry Stahl uh, in Miami. Are you gonna? What are you gonna do in Miami? You're gonna. Well, go I was gonna say first we'll cheers. We'll cheers your name uh, for the record. Like you said, it's on Sunday. And uh, it's at 3 p.m. And it's me, Jerry Stahl, and Jonathan Ames, who, again, just another genius. Uh, I'm just so lucky to be sharing the stage. Are you going to go on the beach? Are you going to behave like a bad boy at all? Are you going to go? Oh, I mean, listen, it's Miami. So you got to get a little sun. You got to have a little fun in the sun. So so I'm sure. But to be honest, if I'm being honest, as much as I love the beach, where you're probably going to find me at Miami is wherever there's a dive bar. And maybe I'll see if I can if I can drag Jerry along. But Andrew, thank you so much for this. And thank you for the conversation. I really appreciate it. I bet you said that to all the girls, Isaac. Uh, <laughs> finally, um, the book, Dirtbag Massachusetts, already a bestseller. Make it more of a bestseller. Buy it if you haven't read it. It's a wonderful book. Uh, it's, it's, it's Isaac Fitzgerald, one of America's leading new talents. Um, 
what else would you suggest people read? What, what are you, you mentioned a couple of books. Oh, also. man, let me tell you. I, I got you. Night of the Living Res by Morgan Taltley is so, so good. So this is, it's, it's a collection of stories, but they're all linked. And it's by Morgan uh, is, was raised on a native reservation, an American Indian native reservation up in Maine. So we have so many wonderful indigenous authors uh, right now. But what I love about it is it is this more north, northeastern view of what that life looks like. It is gritty. It is tough. I think, Andrew, if you haven't read it, I think you would absolutely. No, I haven't read it. I have to get him. Do you know him? I have to get him on the show. Yeah, I'll absolutely. I can pass can on his email. Me? For sure. He's, he's fantastic. Um, and then this other one that I love is a graphic novel, actually, but it's called Ducks. Yeah, like, we had Kate Beaton on the show. You had Kate. All right, so I don't need to tell you about ducks, but again, I just that was a perfect example of like showing a gruff world, but how even in that gruff world, there's the softness. 